We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. So what was the news of last week? Uh, what's his name? Richard Hanania got canceled because he was posting racist stuff or sexist stuff in a previous life. And oh my God. And then Matt Iglesias got into the mix, sort of the left-wing Hanania, and then almost got canceled because at some point he had liked one of his tweets or something. Like that whole little shit fit about little substackers having little fights uh, online. It's like, this is ridiculous, right? There's no, there's no there there. None of these people, well, I mean, I guess the left does, but you know, none of these right-wing sort of rabble-rousers have like a constituency or a political movement or anything behind them at all, right? It's like maybe some of their thinking gets into the zeitgeist obliquely, which then does influence policy, maybe. But it's, it, just, it feels fake in a way. It, it's still the end of history in the United States, just that the end of history in Europe, in Paris, by the way, which is gorgeous, and the riots, there was no riots, there was no anything. It's ridiculous, the overreaction to all that. Paris is still the most gorgeous city in the world. In Europe, the end of history is this beautiful little museum that's, that's very nicely administered that you live in, and it's kind of quiet and a little boring, but it's magnificent, right? In the US, capitalism still runs 100%, 100 miles an hour, but everything's kind of a mess. And you still have the men with hollow chests beating their chest, like to quote Nietzsche's phrase about the last men, except in this case, they have substacks, right? <laughs> and they sit there and they beat their chests, and that is their job, to beat their chest in the end of history. But nothing's actually gonna change. Nothing actually happens. like how uh you know three latinx's on the pod i'm the only one who's ever on time <laughs> and then and then antonio's basically been podcasting on the group chat on his way to the podcasting <laughs> recording studio so I, I i really don't know what's going on here <laughs> yeah he um he does this effortlessly yeah y'all just are missing out not being in a group chat with Antonio because I, I don't know how he can peck that out on a, a phone. <laughs> like mine's littered with grammatical errors and typos and he's kind of just writing chaos monkeys in the, in the group chat <laughs> on, on the end of history and, and which way Western man. We should talk about the Zuck Elon fight. I mean, that's always uh, an interesting topic. Well, for, first, why don't you share your quick analysis? You, you saw Dustin Moskovitz's comments, right? Like Elon hasn't really done much to speed up SpaceX and maybe, or to space develop, maybe he's even slowed it down or something, but at most he sped it up like a year or two. He's basically saying that when he critiques Elon, he hears the response back of, Hey, Elon's done so much via SpaceX and Tesla that like, you know, he deserves a pass, so to speak from, from, from people who disagree with him or, or think that he's making a big mistake with Twitter. Um, why is Dustin insanely wrong there? There's some similarity in that Dustin made money from somebody else's endeavors by attaching himself to a rocket ship. Um, and I guess Asana is about a $5 billion company. So you shouldn't, you know, that, that's successful. It's a, it's, it's a public company. It's still yeah. a going concern. But I don't think a guy who built a task management software company has really any place to be pining on someone who took rockets which hadn't ever landed back on earth successfully turn that into a pedestrian thing right like we this happens multiple times per week right i think tesla's or spacex is on a rocket that has gone up and down 20 times without blowing up um i think spacex now represents 80 percent 
or, or greater of all kilograms put into space. And so you're, 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 this is stuff that only nation states could do. And, and they're doing routinely, profitably, um, encouraging the, the creation of a whole new set of, of companies and, and industry. And then, by the way, he also has this company, Tesla, which is 60%. So all of the rest of the, the car companies in America, storied car companies, um, ones that have union jobs or whatever, whatever progressive thing you want to put, they sell fewer than the combined sell fewer electric cars than than Elon. Right. So the, the climate change movement, effective altruism, like we need to do all this stuff. The person who is single handedly moving the needle to make a, a large chunk of emissions. And, and he has a whole plan for a whole bunch of the other uh, sources of, of carbon emissions. The one who's actually done the most practical progress towards reducing fossil fuel in average everyday American life is, is also Elon. Uh, come on. Like, I, I, I just go back to your task management software. He has a whole, of course, his philanthropic organization that has a lot of smart people there doing, you know, good work. I'm sure flush that out a little bit further in terms of like what are the effects of his uh, uh, donations there. I'm not an expert on everything he's donated, but I think he he's he's behind you know decarceration, uh, progressive prosecutors, and I think it's worth separating some of those issues, right? And I think we've talked about it on the podcast before, but and we talked about this with Noah, where you you have decarceration, which starts from a good place probably shouldn't be putting people who have these kind of like small marijuana based offenses in prison. So get those people out. But then you get down this crazy slippery slope where now you're letting all these these convicted felons out on on no bail or, you know, right back out onto the streets and they're doing all this terrible stuff. And you just you can search Twitter for all the terrible stuff that happens as a result of not taking someone who should probably be in prison. But before they are kind of uh, convicted of that crime through our, our judicial system, they should be in jail, right? So I, I think the fact that you would even try to be defending that at this point, it is a failed policy. And the people who are disproportionately impacted by those policies tend to be people of kind of lower socioeconomic and, and minority status, right? You, you, don't, you don't have the, the convicted felon who's getting out on, on no bail showing up in some really rich neighborhood and doing something bad. What they end up doing is they end up, you know, killing, killing someone in, in their own neighborhood or, or, you know, preying on other people in, in kind of disadvantaged situation. And so I think you have to have some baseline of law and order in society. Um, there was an interesting uh, tweet that someone showed that they took five cities in Europe that are super progressive from a drug law the way they treat things and i want to say it was you know one in portugal maybe it was lisbon amsterdam vienna a couple different places and the one of the consistent things that all of these countries had was they have really aggressive policing around drug, uh, open air drug markets right like so, so they would never let something like the tenderloin happen they also have safe injection sites and all these very progressive things around drug policy but the fact that we, we were People are not just showing up in the tenderloin and, and cleaning up the, the drug dealers who are, who are just hanging out on the streets. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's interesting. There used to be a big debate um, between sort of like, you know, should these philanthropic organizations focus locally on, you know, cities like San Francisco or Detroit or within our country that are really struggling? Or should they focus in sort of third world countries that have you know, much bigger problems 
like I, I think that was a, a a question but that that debate has even gotten further magnified i think within the ea community because ea has um you know pursued kind of this long-termism uh approach about you know what about caring about future people and what about focusing on existential risks um whether it's ai or um sort of other you know p- pandemics etc other sort of p- uh, potential risks that could happen in the future and some people are saying well that could happen but also we have major problems here and now and so i think these organizations are wrestling with how to allocate um you know capital to where you can have the biggest impact not not just uh in in today's you know pe- um sort of you know people whether it's in third world countries or here but also in terms of uh tomorrow's people uh if you, future people as it relates to existential risks i think people should have the freedom to do with what they want with their money even if i disagree with how they spend it like they earned it they should be able to to or i mean some people earned it but you you earn it you pay your taxes do what you want with your money and if you want to go do stuff outside the u.s great right i think bill gates has done an amazing job with uh polio and and malaria and like that that i think is a huge net benefit to humanity and, and good good for him for doing that stuff i think we're my like we, we should be focused. Our, our problems that we're focused on should be focused through our political process in the U.S. And, and that's where we should be holding people accountable. So if you're the one funding um, kind of these these crazy prosecutors who, who basically don't believe in crime. Um, I mean, just look at look at what's happened in San Francisco. They, they put the and this actually might even be a mayor policy mixed with the prosecution side of things. What is it? Nine hundred dollars is not a crime. And so you just turned every single Walgreens into, you know, just go and do whatever. And then there was that viral clip. Um, what is it? A week or two ago where I think it was in Stockton, California. So it wasn't quite San Francisco, but you could kind of lump most of California under this um, pretty progressive view towards crime. And the guy had, a, I think, a trash can and he was just stealing stuff from like a, a local gas station or bodega type place. And then the two shop owners beat him with a, a stick. And at first, like the, the the viral clip went out and then it was like that, that the shop owners were going to be investigated for assault of someone who was stealing stuff from their their store. And then I think it came out later that they realized that was going to just blow up in their face. But I mean, if, if you can't have like a basic version of like this is against the law, we are going to prosecute that. Yeah. Society starts to break down. Right. And fortunately, we have a, a system in this country where there are a whole bunch of other states where they think that that would be crazy. And what what is dysfunctional in San Francisco doesn't have to happen in a state like Utah or, you know, Texas. Mark was pessimistic on, on Gary Tan's efforts when we had him uh, on the other episode. And we should have Gary at some point on. Are you are you more optimistic or how do you how do you conceive of like the counter you know the resistance in, in San Francisco, so to speak? I don't know. I. I think Mark has a lot of wisdom in, in how he kind of approaches the stuff where he, there's a lot of hopium when people see stuff, they feel like they're in the moment, like yeah. changes now. That said, I think maybe I'm a bit more optimistic sometimes. And I do think Gary is actually kind of in the, in the freaking trenches right now. I, like I yeah. saw some Twitter exchange where he's like calling some guy like a racist and just like going after him because that guy was going after Gary for being rich. And it's like, Gary grew up, I think like on, I don't know, food stamps or he's kind of a good rag to riches, like worked his ass off and and got to where he is. And so anyone trying to attack Gary Tan for being kind of like wealthy 
it's like, no, dude earned it. And and now he's actually putting a lot of effort back into trying to make San Francisco. I mean, and Gary Tan has, I don't want to speak for Gary, but like my, my sense is Gary is like very much a Democrat. He's just not crazy. Basically, it's like the crazies in San Francisco think Gary Tan is a, like a fascist. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, like, this is just crazy. Um, but I mean, I think he's he's pretty serious about getting Dean Preston out of there and a couple of the supervisors. The question is, do they flip enough of the seats? I'm curious if we could talk about him uh, before he comes. Like, what is your story about why he converted to Judaism? Or like, how do you make sense of Antonio's like uh, of decisions? Or, or, or what would be interesting to talk about Antonio when, when before he comes or when he's not here? to our audience. I think what's interesting about Antonio is that obviously he's he's extremely well read and and he he's not just kind of randomly picking Judaism off the shelf like yeah, yeah. grew up in a uh you know Cuban American or I guess you know Cuban immigrant household like very catholic area went to I think a, a elite catholic boys high school that you know Fidel Castro had been the the equivalent I think in Havana that's where he had gone. Um and so kind of like very much rooted in that tradition it has the secular component in that he's extremely educated, like PhD dropout in physics. Um, and then I think well-read on the, on the literary side. So I think he can blend a lot of different things together. And I, what, I, what I find fascinating about it is, is well into life, he's, he's making the decision to convert to Judaism. So, so at least for Antonio, it seems like he's found some truth or some, something of value there. And I think that m- makes me reflect and say, it's like, huh, like what, what am, should I be looking for something like that? And not, not necessarily Judaism, but, but my own version of, um, you know, some, some version of self-discovery. It, it is pretty insane how well-read Antonio is and that he's also like a crypto startup entrepreneur and, you know, previously a YC founder a decade ago, if, if folks have read Chaos Monkeys, they, they'd know just kind of this eclectic set of skills and interests yeah, I mean, he's a he's an interesting guy. He's lived, <laughs> like his like his cat, he's lived nine lives. <laughs> I I think what is interesting though for me is you do definitely have periods where if you're not on the grind of a startup and, and you do take some time yep. off in between or something that's a little less structured, depending on how much you want to apply yourself, you can get a lot done, right? Like I, I want to say. I read a hundred books in the year and a half that I was off and you know, not a hundred percent of, you know, flipping through yep. and consumed a lot of other media, um, you know, really got into cooking, got into cycling. Like you, you start to fill the time up of, of that eight hour, 10 hour workday every day. Like you, you can actually start to get interesting pretty fast. Where the hell is this guy? Hey, Luke, dude. who decided to come. I, I have a good excuse this time though. As a little example of the anarcho-tyranny that I'm mired in, I literally last week found my car with a parking ticket and a broken window. I literally <laughs> had to go drive to the middle of nowhere, Bayview Hunters Point, to go pay for a window replacement and also have to go pay a parking ticket for the broken into car. That's that's the state of the world in 2023 right now. How was your trip to Israel? Yeah, yeah. But how's all the other countries in the world? Well, I have to say, it, I spent a week in Europe in Paris and a week in uh, in Israel. And I have to say they were an interesting contrast to the, uh, the state of America. Be pleased to hear that I was in the blue bottle across the way here and somebody recognized me for MOZ and said I should be on more shows. So I'm, I'm actually, at least you're, you sent agents that are nagging me in person. Happening organically, so here we are. I, I haven't been recognized for MOZ yet. Like, what? I guess I, I'm not in the right place. You don't go outside, it, Dan. <laughs> yeah. You, uh, the um, 
you're in LA, uh, you know, I, I bet we have more listeners in SF. We, we did, Antonio, before you got on, we were just reflecting on the the impact our show has had. Like, why do people listen? Like, what role does our show fill? Uh, Dan was just beginning to weigh in. I, I don't know. I think our show, you have people who are kind of in the inside of a lot of what's happening in Silicon Valley via the group chats, as we've talked about. Um, I don't think anyone's kind of the main character, which is probably useful, right? Like I think um, some of the other more prominent podcasts maybe in, in, in tech that have somewhat of a similar format, like they can actually be the main character in a given week or, or right there. And so I think that the crits maybe a little bit more, I think they have to hedge their statements a lot more. Um, and I think we just kind of say what we think rather than having to kind of worry about, oh, this constituency or that constituency. And I also think we treat our, our listeners like they're smart and actually make them do work, right? So we're going to give a reference here or there, and then you go look it up on Wikipedia if that's interested to you. We're just going to keep moving um, rather than trying to go one-on-one on every topic and appeal to maybe a wider audience. It isn't just the all in podcast, but like 10 IQ points higher. That isn't still true. <laughs> it's not basically the pitch. <laughs> what, what do you think, Eric? I mean, we're, we're part of your uh, growing podcast media empire. So I'm, I'm curious where you see MOZ fitting into your, your lineup of shows here. It's, uh, it's definitely an idiosyncratic, iconoclastic show. I, I, I hear a lot of people who come, who come up to me and say, hey, you know, I just checked out Tom Holland or I just checked out Joe Henrich or who's this Curtis guy or um, like, I think we <laughs> are like a gateway drug to like different, different ideas or different rabbit holes for people to, to go down. I think people get smarter about SF. I think people get smarter about some of these kind of like broader, um, you know, broader things around religion, um, broader things around like politics Um I think for like the techie intellectual or aspiring, you know, curious person outside of just business, there's, there's no other show uh, like it in my network or, or, or separate in terms of like the, the range of topics it covers, I think. What other show has source material where you wake up on a Sunday morning and there are 300 unread signal messages from the group <laughs> chat between Antonio and, and an unnamed person arguing, you know, future of Western civilization? <laughs> Um, which almost made me break up with my girlfriend, by the way. But yeah, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, your network, Eric, you're talking about this thing like you're fucking Rupert Murdoch at the head of the News Corporation. It's incredible. So how many? How big is this? What you know? T- yeah. Tell us about this turpentine business. When is it going public? When are you doing a hostile takeover of the SF Chronicle? Like, what, what's going down here exactly? Right. So we're still, you know, still very early, uh, early days. We have we have eight shows. Um, Moment of Zen is the biggest one. Uh, the other ones are largely more niche or category specific. And that's what we're trying to do is, is create like category defining business media, basically. And we're starting with podcasts. I have a, a co-founder um, who's amazing. Her name is uh, Amelia Salyer. She used to um, help lead uh, editorial at Andreessen. She, she did the Future um, publication. And she also helped run their, their podcast um, operation with, with Sonal and others. And uh, we've got a team of five full-time people, so we're 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 cranking. We have uh, a lot of shows in development, and excited to expand beyond shows into into newsletters, into events, lists, kind of like a full-fledged media operation. Wait, so is there going to be an MOZ summit? 
<laughs> if uh, if you guys give the heads up or, or the go ahead, it would certainly be a, a Amazon event. Well, we can't do it on Shabbat. Yeah, we can't do it on Shabbat. Um, I, I love how we're the biggest show in the network. So just to use an analogy, we're the Tucker Carlson of your Fox News, just to be clear. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's great. <laughs> well, Antonio, give us, give us the update. So you haven't been on in, in a month or so. Um, that long? Uh, Fuck. Okay. Well, yeah, no, he, you were you were on the Mark episode, but oh, you were right, from like a tin can right. in, in Tel Aviv or something. I forget <laughs> yeah, what, yeah. what was going on. <laughs> But yeah, pe- people want up- updates with you too. Antonio, why don't you give the 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 spindle update and yeah, just where your head's been at. Oh, well, yeah, spindle's cranking. I won't bore you with uh, the, the details of uh, Web3 attribution <laughs> analytics. But um, yeah, for business reasons, I was in um, I was in Paris. I was in ETC. Uh, ETC is this big crypto conference. It's the biggest in Europe. So I was, I was in Paris for that, which was big. We put on a big splashy event, a lot of meetings. And it's odd to be walking down the uh, Boulevard Saint-Germain and be recognized for like some crypto techie wonky thing, possibly the first time in French history in which, you know, techies have like met each other, like, or like, hey, aren't you da-da-da next to, you know, in the middle of the, uh, of the, the Latin Quarter in, in Paris. It was, it was a fun event, actually. It was uh, really uh, enjoyable. Uh, and then after that, I went uh, for a week to Israel, partially for personal reasons, partially business. We just had a, a partnership with an Israeli company in, in Tel Aviv. And given it was close, I thought I'd go. It was also a Jewish holiday called Tisha B'Av, and uh, it's one of the more tragic days in the, in the Jewish calendar in which you uh, sort of mourn the destruction of the temple, as well as a bunch of other horrible things that have happened in the Jewish calendar. If you don't quite believe divine intervention, uh, if nothing else, just the birthday paradox would make it such that in the history of a several thousand year old people, it just so happened that a lot of bad things happen on one day, and the ninth of Av is that day. And uh, so for that day, what you're traditionally supposed to do is go to the Western Wall, which to remind everybody is the, the Western wall, of the former temple and go there and kind of mourn and read the book of Lamentations and sing songs, et cetera, which I did. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. So yeah, it was interesting. Uh, it, you know, It's funny, we live in this... Um, I think one of our favorite uh, on the official MOZ bookshelf, probably up here somewhere, is uh, Bruno Machais' book about um, history has ended or whatever. I always forget the title because there's a different title in, in, the, in Europe versus here. But basically saying that we live in an elective virtual reality in which Americans are basically opting out of reality. And, I, you know, it's funny. I, I think he's more and more right every day. So it's funny to kind of get out of that reality and get jarred into a world that's having real conflict like Israel and see the sort of virtual version of that in, in the United States. Antonio, so I'm curious, um, given how much time you spent on working on the conversion to yeah. 
actually make it back to Israel? Because you had been there once before, but a long time ago. Any new perspective or any anything that you were surprised about? To set the scene for those who aren't following the Israeli news, there's this massive nationwide political confrontation, so to speak, um, over this judicial reform. Just to get the very short version of the deal, um, Israel, A, doesn't have a constitution. It has a, a sort of basic set of laws, but it doesn't really have... it. Odd considering a people that has nothing but a founding document and is, which is the most covenantal thing in human history. Somehow they actually don't have a constitution, even though, of course, they have the Torah. Um, two, um, I mean, the right is basically winning and the, the right wing coalition is winning and is slated to win probably for the foreseeable future. And two, um, you don't have the balance of powers of judiciary, executive and all that stuff in the United States. You, you literally have a sort of Supreme Court that has taken for itself lots of power to basically nullify any any lawful law that actually came through the parliamentary process. And to those that are for that, that's considered a checks and balances is necessary. And for those who are against it, it's an anti-democratic thing. So the big debate is basically, do we nuke the Supreme Court and its ability to nuke legislation or do we not? At, at, at its core, that is the debate. Um, and what that means, of course, is, again, every a lot of things in Israel are flipped from here. The Supreme Court is, is naturally leans left and secular and liberal. And the parliament now is controlled, or the Knesset is controlled by a right-wing coalition that has the Haredi, i.e. the people with the black hats, the very orthodox, has religious Zionists, has Mizraki Jews, the Jews from Arab countries that are very different than the Ashkenazi Jews. There's just, there's a right-wing coalition that is in some sense opposed to the left-wing Ashkenazi slash Europeanized um, constituency that has ruled Israel for, since its founding, basically. And so much of the same... A lot of the feeling was kind of similar, felt like a rerun of the Trump thing in the United States. Not exactly. And again, I've often railed against like turning every external issue into like an internal U.S. one. So the mapping is a little bit iffy here and there. But broadly speaking, it is the case that you're seeing a revolt against a liberal elite through the populist mechanism of direct of semi-direct democracy. That That is a little bit the, what's going on. And it's funny, you know, liberal elites as they start losing elections right, and having their their strength undermined, like exercise the same tropes in the same way. Not necessarily unjustified, to be clear, but the vibe is definitely, you know, après moi le fascisme, to use, uh, you know, Louis the Fourteenth or Louis the Sixteenth. things about, uh, you know, after me, the, the flood, well, after me, the horrible fascism is going to come if we don't retain power. Um, the other thing they do is that they obviously, they, they frame their ideological enemies as the worst possible elements among them, right? We, we were to believe during the Trump election that 46% or however many Americans voted for Trump were all like knuckle-dragging white supremacists and stuff and kind of not the reality if you kind of see the United States. And ditto in Israel, they cast the right as nothing but, you know, super conservative, black hat-wearing Jews who are living um, in a pre-martyr period of time, which isn't quite true, right? Like, again, Have they got to the point where they're accusing the right-wing Jews of being Nazis? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, n- not yet, but it's funny. The when the the, the left when the, when the left threatens to move instead of threatening to move to Canada like they do here, they threaten to move to Berlin, which is really quite ironic. Which is an irony. It's funny in in Israel, it's become quite normalized, and it's understandable, by the way. Berlin is kind of the center of gravity in Europe in a way that you can reinvent yourself. But it is a little odd right, that the you know the country that was founded literally as a reaction to the um, to the Holocaust is in some sense fleeing back to the capital of that country um and it's funny well, like, I, I, I didn't, I, I, didn't yeah, was it did you share the the clip where it was like a bunch of people in berlin like free palestine like you know like <laughs> they basically like here, here's here's like a point of view people in berlin shouldn't talk about stuff in israel just like leave it off that you can you can talk about a whole bunch of other issues like germans like probably shouldn't weigh in on israel like anytime soon 
I, I don't know if I'd go that far. I mean, Germany has paid reparations for years on end to Israel as part of uh, the process. So in some sense, they have skin in the game to some degree. But um, <laughs> but it, uh, well, God, that was a terrible, that was an accidental <laughs> pun there. But um, yeah. but in any case, getting back to the Israel thing, it was funny to see that sort of liberal cosmopolitan elite encountering the traditionalist, particularist, you know, anti that faction in very real terms. And again, it, what's different about it in, in, in Israel is that in the US, you know, Trump or whoever can win is like almost the statistical fluke of this weird bipartisan system we have, right? But it's not like, it's not like the right is slated to win forever. If, if anything, it's a revolt against, you know, what is by default, a kind of left of center society. In Israel, it's different, right? Israel is one of the few countries in in the free world or whatever you want to call it, broadly the West, that is leaning more to the right and more religious over time, right? And so the, the, the I mean, Israel was founded as a secular socialist project, right? But after the Yom Kippur War in 73, the, the right-wing bloc started winning elections and has more or less run the country since then. The traditional left-wing party, um, the, the sort of far-left party, I think didn't even get a single Knesset seat or, or maybe two or three in the most recent election. They basically don't exist anymore. The hard left doesn't exist anymore in, in Israel. And then it's also getting more religious. And so you, and it's not just a Haredi, right? You, you have people who are Orthodox who are observant. Some of them are what are called religious Zionists. So two of the biggest leaders, a guy named Smotrich and another guy named Ben Kavir. They're not the sort of black hat wearing, you know, Jews that you associate with whatever the ultra Orthodox as some of the misnomer that's used in English. They, you know, they're integrated with society. Their children serve in the army. They have jobs. They're not living on, on an island, but they do embrace, um, you know, real Orthodox Jewish life. And that stands at odds with, with, you know, the Tel Aviv spirit of open, liberal, cosmopolitan, whatever. And um, Israel is an amazing place. The aesthetics are magnificent. You go from Tel Aviv, which is this kind of rough on the edges, Miami, right? But for the price of Singapore, by the way, the place is super expensive with like a Silicon Valley plopped into the middle of it. So imagine Brickle, Eric, right? So like a few of these like gleaming towers and brickle plopped into the middle of, of Tel Aviv, surrounded by what is kind of a kind of rundown-ish version of Miami. And again, super fucking, that's Tel Aviv. And then, you know, you get on this beautiful train, by the way, which now connects Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. So you can practically commute between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem and it's funny, to me, it was a, it was a radically different experience. It's, um, it's, it's more beautiful in some ways. It's more traditional. It's all built in this beautiful Jerusalem stone. So it has this brilliant yellow to it. It's in the Judean hills. So it's in high desert. Kind of reminds me of where I used to live outside of Reno. These beautiful craggy ridges and, and pine trees and stuff. It's really quite cool. It's what you think of the Holy Land. There, there's this thing called Jerusalem syndrome that people go to Jerusalem like pilgrims and get overwhelmed and think they're Jesus so that they've seen God because it is this overwhelming spiritual experience, right? I don't know, man. Jerusalem looks pretty cool. <laughs> like, what's so wrong with it? You're just supposed to describe it as this hellscape, and it just doesn't seem that way. And later on in my stay, I, I actually got kind of bored of Tel Aviv. And so I just get in the train and go to Jerusalem and just hang out there. And it was just, it, to me, it, it was, it's just such an interesting, colorful place. Um, okay, I'll stop there because there's probably questions. Or... No, no, no. I mean, when I, so I took eight months off between kind of Coinbase and, and Farcaster. And we did, traveled and the first place we went to was the Middle East. So we started in Jordan, then we went to Egypt and then had to work our way back to Jordan to get to Israel. And it was the first time I'd ever been in Israel. Started in Tel Aviv, which I, I describe as like Miami mixed with L.A. And kind of, you know, you don't have the humidity. Right. And but, you know, super cosmopolitan, fun place to go. And then we went to Jerusalem where we were actually there on Shabbat. So nothing was open. There was one restaurant open for like 
schmucks like me who were, who were there because I didn't have any place to go to eat. So we had to get this like bad pizza or whatever. But the one of the most kind of like powerful things for me was I, we went to the Mount of Olives, right? Because I'm not Jewish. I'm uh, you know Catholic. So I was like, OK, let's go. Let's go actually see Gethsemane. And, and then but you have this amazing view of the entire kind of old part of the city still in the walls. You have the Dome of the Rock. And then you also have this giant Jewish, um, you know, Israel, Israeli flag on the top of this hill. And then there's this whole story about th that's actually a group of settlers on this side of Jerusalem, which is, is an, you know, Arab part of uh, Palestinian part of Jerusalem. Um, and so you have the whole like kind of set of conflicts and then you're sitting up there and, and you kind of are like, OK, Saladin could have been on this hill looking at Jerusalem, of, you know, a thousand years ago, thinking about, OK, like I got to go kick out those crusaders. And then you walk down the path and then you're looking at olive trees that in theory were, were around at the time of Christ. Like it, it is just a, it's a mind blowing place. Yeah, it, it really is. Can I point out one thing that it's, it's really interesting? I, I'm assuming the left in Israel would love a constitution right now. Like, the, the, you know, it's some, something that would kind of check the, the power, whereas the left in the U.S., is loving the idea of like getting rid of parts of our constitution, like the electoral college is corrupt, like let's change the, the Supreme Court, like all, all these kind of things that the constitution's pesky for them. Uh, on, on the left in Israel would love love to have a constitution. I, I, I just think that that's kind of funny. It, I, I mean, the reality is that principle goes out the window when power politics have come to the fore, right? And you become a strict constitutionalist or a strict judiciary oversight person, depending on who controls the court or who's writing the constitution. And otherwise there's not a lot of principle to it. Um, so yeah, I don't think a Jewish constitution is ever happening. I think it was basically avoided when the state was founded because they realized they would never agree on it. And there was too many other pressing issues. Literally the night after the declaration of the state, they were bombarded by Egyptian airplanes. So it wasn't exactly the time to sit around and haggle over a constitution. Um, and since then, I think everything has been improvised in Israel. But, um, but again, it was fascinating. I, so let me, let's get to what I think is fascinating and how it Getting back to my uber point about how politics in the U.S. have become largely a LARP, right, is that like it, it, in some sense, and not taking a side either way, really, but the, the right that we're talking about does want to back off from liberalism a little bit. And if by liberalism you mean secular universalism, right, in that sense, they are pumping the brakes on that and saying, no, Israel's not going to be a Western style enlightenment state like any other right? The, the, this is a Jewish state, not a state of Jews, right? And that's a, that's a different sort of state. doesn't mean it's not democratic, but it just, it just means certain problems will be tackled a very different way, right? Um, and I think that's real in a way that the right in this country, right? Like we're all spent too much time online. So what was the news of last week? Uh, what's his name? Richard Hanania got canceled because he was posting racist stuff or sexist stuff in a previous life. And oh my God. And then Matt Iglesias got into the mix sort of the right wing or the left wing Hananiah and then almost got canceled because at some point he had liked one of his tweets or something like that whole little shit fit about little substackers having little fights uh, online. It's like, this is ridiculous, right? There's no, there's no there, there, right? N none of these people, well, I mean, I guess the left does, but you know, none of these right wing sort of rabble rousers have like a constituency or a political movement or anything behind them at all. Right. It's like, I mean, and maybe some of their thinking gets into the zeitgeist obliquely, which then does influence policy, maybe. But it's it just it feels fake in a way. It, I think I said this in the chat earlier. It's like we're at, it's still the end of history in the United States. Just that the end of history in Europe and Paris, by the way, which is gorgeous, and the riots. There was no riots. There was no anything. It's ridiculous the overreaction to all that. Paris is still the most gorgeous city in the world. 
in Europe, the end of history is this beautiful little museum that's, that's very nicely administered that you live in and it's kind of quiet and a little boring, but it's magnificent, right? In the US, capitalism still runs 100%, 100 miles an hour, but everything's kind of a mess. And you still have, you know, the men with hollow chests beating their beating their chest, like to quote Nietzsche's phrase about the last men, except in this case, they have substacks, right? <laughs> and they sit there and they beat their chests, and that is their job, to beat their chest in the end of history. But nothing's actually going to change. Nothing actually happens. While in Israel, there's something really at stake, right? If this reform goes through, it will be the case that Israeli law will change and that the direction of the country will change in, in, in profound ways. And th- you, you go to Tel Aviv and you go to Jerusalem and they they present different pictures of the future of Israel, right? And that that's just not the case in the United States, at least in my opinion. Are there any other Western countries that are at that level of change? I mean, everyone cites the Hungary example, Orban maybe, but it's just it's just so small and yeah, I mean, it's kind of unimportant in the scheme of things. It's like, eh, who cares? But yeah, um, L- let me um, counter on the Richard Hanania point in terms of offering an alternative, only because he has a book that just came out. It's called The Origins of Woke, um, and it's a good book. And he, he basically makes the claim that there is a set of laws that enabled um, and strengthened and cemented wokeness in kind of modern corporations. And it's not only this just kind of like intellectual fashion, but it's actually the law. And it's been the law for, for some time. And he identifies in his book the exact ways in which it could be overturned or the, the law could be overturned. And you then have people like Chris Rufo and Vivek who are advocating for just, just for exactly that. And we just had affirmative action rolled back. So, I mean, it's, it's still liberalism. So he's, he's not offering like a post-liberalism, but he's, he's making it, he, he's advocating for very specific um, legal maneuvers, practical legal things to make US a more liberal place. If that's if that's your goal, okay. So, so this is the book version of his uh, "Wokeness to Civil Rights Law" or whatever yes, post that went viral exactly. last year, yep. Right, right, yep. which I did read, um, and which I think Matt Iglesias commented on. That's probably why he got canceled. Or whatever. Um, <laughs> Wait, so I just wanted to check: Are we allowed to talk about Richard, or are we now going to be canceled by proxy for even talking <laughs> yeah, yeah. about him? Okay, we're, just check. We're, we're fine, and he's fine too. I, I think cancellations are over. I think you know there was a. Yeah, I think he's going to be even stronger for it. Streisand effect. Hold on, but it, like he's a little impervious to cancellation because he doesn't actually have like a job, right? <laughs> like that's the other thing. Like, canceled means what? I guess he would lose his Substack. I mean, he doesn't actually have like a real job, Wait, right? Never. never I, I thought when you don't have a job or you get fired from a job, you you start a Substack. <laughs> yeah, but that's uh, yeah. I don't know. It's um, yeah. he uh, he. It's not only that, but back in the day, or you know, a few years ago, it's not just that you would lose your job. It's that people would disassociate from you. But we don't see Tyler Cowen or Brian Kaplan or Barry Weiss or I, I don't know people who well, Barry Weiss. Uh, excuse me, people. Barry Weiss disavowed him. University of oh, Austin or whatever disavowed him. And <laughs> is 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 he going to get pieces in the New York Times published going forward? I'd be very surprised by that. Probably not. So and maybe it doesn't matter. Okay, um, so let's let's actually get back to the argument. I just wanted to clear. Yeah. I didn't want to be canceled by proxy because you know, we're talking about someone who's been canceled, right? We do not endorse uh, all this stuff. <laughs> Dan, you're gonna have to kick yourself off Farcaster. That's what's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sorry, yeah. I'm, gonna have to, I'm gonna have to nerf myself. <laughs> Commit seppuku. <laughs> okay, I, 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 yes. So, so I do think it's funny in this this new right, whatever. I think there is a split between Hanania, sort of. And Rufo contingent, I think, is still safely in the world. And in fact, in his sort of apology comeback tour or whatever, he mentioned that he's still a liberal, right? He still embraces that, although it's kind of a classical liberalism with 
slightly eugenic properties, let's be clear, um, right, which is kind of anti-liberal. But um, And then Rufo, who Rufo is, is incredible what he's done from a purely objective, like one man making things happen in the world. <laughs> Rufo has been this one man media army who has scored legislative successes left and right. He absolutely has. So I think you're right to push back on that side of it. Um, if you look at the broader right, though, and maybe this, there is a split between the sort of activist liberal right and the slightly more delusional or sort of fantastical right. You know, I, I'm thinking like people like Sarab Amari of Compact Magazine, Adrian Ramul, who is kind of a Catholic integralist, uh, even Patrick Deneen, who I like, by the way, and I think I've plugged this book before, is of that mold of, you know, they, they, they literally call themselves post-liberals, but it's not clear what that post is even about other than reimposing blue laws such that stories have to close on Sundays or something, which is like one of their big hangups. Um, and in that world, I really, that's where I really am dubious. And it's like, wh what are you being post about? Everyone's still living in the little whole foods bubble, <laughs> right? Of comfortable liberal life, which is why nobody really wants to leave it. It actually is quite cozy, right? Like what is the alternative? And again, outside of the religious right in Israel, which is its own re very real vibe. You can, go to Israel, you can go to Jerusalem and see it. I just don't see what that means. Other than Rod Dreher, who I guess, you know, you know, props to his at least being consistent, actually moved to, to Budapest, I think, right? So however small Hungary might be as an island of whatever they stand for, he at least is kind of living it. But other than that, what does it mean? What, what, what is the post-liberal thing, right? Yeah, Rod Dreher for the audience famously wrote The Benedict Option, which talks about how if you want to have religious life, just go make it happen, go make or live within a community right. that can operate within the modern world, but, you know, under your pre-modern or, you know, your own principles. Right. Which, as far as I can tell, nobody's done. I mean, other than the Amish, of course, we're always living that or the Mormons, but beyond them, what, what does that mean? And, and to be clear, I, I, I tend to agree with them that liberalism definitely has certain shortcomings. Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, is a, is a fantastic book recommended by Obama even. And I think it's probably the best sort of Jeremiad against the flaws of liberalism that you can ever read. If I wanted to direct someone against, you know, to read in that direction, I would definitely suggest Deneen's book. But it's not clear where that leads, to be honest. Even today, I was reading um, this book by, uh, what's his name, Buskirk um, from Stanford. He's another kind of interesting, from the Claremont Institute, I think. And um, it's all about American dynamism. And at the end, what he suggested was basically crypto, Web3, um, interesting one city ideas like Miami. That's kind of interesting, but it's like, it's not clear where that spark, where that, that revitalization movement, if you want to call it that of either straight line liberalism or whatever the post liberalism is, is supposed to be or come from. That's why I think it's kind of a LARP. There's nothing really happening. There's nothing going on. There's nothing at stake, right? The vector that we're going on is not going to change. Yeah. The only, only thing that's actually happening is the Silicon Valley, right? Like right, or, correct. You know, yes. just te technolo technology is the only thing that's kind of in interesting and in moving forward. And everything yeah. else is just circular and, and kind of rehashing. And I know yes. we don't talk about uh, that guy, the plagiarist, but like refinement culture and nostalgia, <laughs> like and all this other stuff that basically is just like we can't can't actually innovate new. And the only thing that's innovating new is Silicon Valley and, and tech. And just for the audience, Paul Scalis is who he's talking about, a.k.a. Lindy Man, who is a great packager of ideas. And sometimes he's too packager good of a packager of ideas. There we go. <laughs> sometimes he packages a little too faithful to the original uh, rendition. Noted, noted Islamic scholar. Yes. <laughs> packager of ideas. Uh, yeah. Austere, austere Islamic austere scholar. Right? You get a job at the New York Times writing headlines, Eric. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe we should share that in joke. Um, who was it? Uh, the, the leader of ISIS got drone striked and the Washington Post uh, referred to him as an austere religious scholar instead of... 
a terrorist. Yeah. And if people <laughs> aren't getting the scholars joke, he literally plagiarized entire lines like copy pasta from my post as either his tweets or in his posts. I was literally like control effing and finding my shit, my tweets actually, in Sol- his posts. Solana's too. Like in real time, we were just realizing that he did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he got kicked <laughs> off Substack. Because- and then I totally lost it and did this whole thread on it that I still get likes on. People are still looking up the thread where like the Lenny man got booted or whatever. And I just totally lost it and went nuts and they kicked him off Substack. But I think he came back or something. He's 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 alive. Yeah, he's now, he's now, now with he's X, on- he has creator monetization, man. He's, 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 on, he's on Beehive. I, I subscribe. I've forgiven him. I like his stuff. I'm rooting for him. Have you forgiven him, Antonio? I'm just, uh, you know, there's a great line in GS Elevator, which is a source of all wisdom online. The best revenge is not giving a shit. I haven't even thought about him, to be honest. <laughs> I don't know. He's the Don Draper <laughs> meme. I don't think yeah, about exactly. you at all. But I, anyways, I think um, refinement culture, though, is an interesting point in the sense that, like, just look at Hollywood and, like, all the stuff. And that's actually, I think, one of the interesting things about um, Oppenheimer Bar- Barbie was the fact that, like, you had two movies that weren't sequels to other things and that there was like an intellectual element with Oppenheimer that actually became somewhat of a at least an online conversation when was the last time a movie did that well hold on but I, I would say just to rehash the decadence point the only two movies the only t- there's two types of movies that exist in the world anymore it's either rehashes of past glories typically in world war ii or basically superhero fantasy movies that's it and each one of these is safely within those genres right the, the glories of the atomic bomb project and literally barbie land yeah, and now now you're going to look at Mattel and they're going to go, okay, every single toy we have, just like the Marvel <laughs> universe, you're going to get the Mattel like content universe and it's going to be awful. I mean, I think Nintendo had the same thing. It's like they had like a Mario movie that did really well. So now you're going to see all these additional things. But it's like, where are the original ideas? Right? I, I like, I don't know. I, I think actually television has has some of that now. Like is, if, if like compared to, to film, it feels like the uh, the prestige TV is actually a lot more original. Dan, are you implying that the inner life of Waluigi is not, um, <laughs> or is it Wario? I can't remember. They're doing one of the one of the Mario characters. I don't know. We know we know Sri Ram will watch all the movies and tell us that they're great. Yes. <laughs> he yes. just did that. He just did that with Spider Man like twenty minutes ago. Yeah, he, yeah, he was he was like texting. He was like, "Oh man, the Spider Man movies are great." It's like, dude, like, stop watching comic book movies like ten years ago. Dude, are are, are you twelve? Like, what's going on here? Aren't you an adult with like a job <laughs> and kids and all this stuff? No, Shriram's good because he's a good. Uh, he keeps us abreast of cultural issues. Yeah, that's right. We're just ripping him so he comes on and talks to us about it. So yeah, post liberalism is the LARP. It's basically it's liberalism or religion. You're going back to pre modernity. There's no, there's nothing in between, or post. Dude, I don't know. It's it's a little bit above my my pay grade to like figure out why is it that we haven't invented a new religion recently, um, other than things like Scientology. I guess Mormonism, climate change. what about transhumanism do you think that is any it's it's definitely it's it's a form of gnosticism right gnosticism being the strain within christian and other thinking that the corporeal is evil and should be abandoned and that human life should exist in a purely spiritual realm and through that achieve immortality that basically is transhumanism Um, and there's elements of that in christianity right and so yeah antonio it might be worth an aside here isn't it kind of interesting that like because you went to Catholic school as well, like you learn about all these like weird heretical versions of Christianity, like, and you kind of like are bored out of your mind in high school. And then if you actually have any baseline on on some of them, you can start to map them to all these different secular groups now. And it's like, wait a second, like you just reinvented this like thing from like, you know, seventh century France. Like they had those people and actually they did a crusade and they killed all of those people. (laughs) Like, yeah, you know. And you almost wish they would bring back the burning at the stake business to just settle the matter once and for all. But in any case, but yeah, no, no. I mean, I've often argued that the, 
the real reason for a religious education is just to recognize religious thinking when you see it. And again, a lot of the people in the thrall of religious thinking now just don't realize that they're rehashing heresies from centuries ago um, all over again. Yeah. yeah. Including Christianity itself, which is a little unauthorized spinoff move from Judaism. But leave that aside. <laughs> this messianic cult that got a little bit too big. But yeah. Eric, what's going on with the hair? Your hair is just getting more and more wild. Has, how has nobody commented on it? Sorry to be that guy, but this is this is insane. This is this kind of I, I kind of like it though. You know, I go through phases, and I'm just I'm just growing it out until I can't take it anymore. Or other people can't take it anymore, and it's close. But we'll see how far I get. Antonio, I want to make sure that we get to what we were just talking about in the chat. Basically, oh. so you you were saying the the vocal win. You know, skirmishes here and there, red states, like the gerontocracy and deep state aren't going away. Like, do you think that's an interesting thread? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to get back to the, like, why I think a lot of it, so if, maybe I'm just getting fucking tired of the Twitter <laughs> uh, fucking circus, or I think partially triggered by, again, seeing places that actually have real sort of political, you know, turmoil to them, is that nothing's actually changing. The, the gerontocracy is still there, right? Like, Charles Schumer and Pelosi and Fein, you know, Feinstein are still in power, even though some of them are even semi-sentient. Um, the, the, the basic political orientation of our elite institutions is the same. Yeah, maybe there are skirmishes here and there with Roofer or whatever, but there's no, there's no dramatic change in any direction coming. I think it's just we're going to settle into to a period of relatively affluent stagnation, right? Like, I, I don't think it's actually the end of the world. That's the other thing, right? Like, there actually isn't a crisis going on. And the, the same thing struck me with Israel. Everyone's think, talking about it's the end of the world. It's like, Motherfuckers, you realize in the 1967 war, your parents or grandparents were l literally digging ditches in their front yards to like fight to the death before getting pushed to the sea. And you're getting a little snippy about the fact that uh, you managed to lose the last election and therefore I'm getting on a plane to Berlin. It's like, are, are you people out of your minds? Like in, in many ways, it's never been, things have never been better for Israel, right? Like the Palestinians didn't come up in any conversation even once because to be blunt, politically, they don't matter anymore. They've been basically contained and that's it. It just doesn't matter to the political process. Every Arab country that historically would threaten Israel's survivor is, is basically a, a skeleton of an actual state. Syria is, is, is a failed state. Egypt is quasi-failed. Jordan is kind of hanging on. Lebanon is a Hezbollah colony, basically. Israel has nothing to fear from its immediate neighbors, right? And its GDP per capita is higher than Germany's at this point. It's thriving as an economy. If anything, it's a problem. That things have just gotten too expensive and not everyone is joining in the prosperity. Similar problems of in the United States. And so th there actually isn't, other than Iran, right, there isn't an existential threat that's breathing down Israeli's throats. And yet the sort of like the screechiness and the volume of the political debate and the hysteria of it is like cranked up to 11, similar, the same way that it is in the United States. And it's unfortunate because I think a lot of it's, I think the real danger, if they were to ask me like, okay, Antonio, what do you think is a real problem here? I don't think it's a judicial reform. I think, here's another thing. Here's another little anecdote. I did two Shabbat dinners when I was in, in Tel Aviv, both secular Israelis, like people who work in tech, like, oh, not those crazies with the black hats. They both did a totally canonical Jewish, uh, uh, you know, kiddush with the cup and the prayer and the little kippah and the, and the whole thing. The, the secular Israelis are more observant than your average American Jew, right? And then I went to a Tisha B'Av uh, breaking a fast with an Orthodox family, and they did the same. They, they weren't actually that different at the end of the day, right? The, the Tel Avivian Jew and the Jerusalem Jew at the end of the day is not that different. Here in the U.S., the Red and Blue tribe live in, like, different moral universes, like, completely different worlds. In Israel, the only difference is the guy you're talking to is married with three kids versus married with eight kids. But that's it. <laughs> They're both still doing the Shabbat dinner thing with a little wine in the candle on Friday. 
And so it's just bizarre to me that they're interjecting this level of just political dysfunction and fragmentation in a society that actually isn't, in my opinion, naturally that fragmented. Were you sympathetic to the yells take that um, this shift rightward is going to last? Like there might be some initial pushback and people leaving, et cetera, but that the, for the next decade or two decades, like this is going to hold? Yeah, man. Demographics are destiny. Like I said, like the the secular Israeli had three kids and the religious one had eight kids. And that's, that's just what it is. Um, I don't think it's going to change. I feel like there were concerns at one point that Arabs were having more kids and that they would outnumber, but no. Eh, modernity kills everything it touches. They, <laughs> they, too got, uh, they too got touched by modernity and uh, their birth rate went down. I mean, I think uh, Arafat had a famous phrase that the secret weapon of the Arabs is the womb of the Palestinian woman. It's like, well, <laughs> that's what, I don't think that's been working out so far. Um, I mean, left unaddressed in all this, of course, is the whole West Bank Judea situation, what to do with the settlers. Um, but that, what, what is the them. point of view for people in Israel? Like if you were to kind of synthesize or maybe in each camp, like what, what, what do people think that you should do with the West Bank? <sighs> yeah, this <laughs> it's I, my general feeling this is very anecdotal, but just talking to people on both sides on the right. The feeling is we'll see which I think is their oblique way of saying, eh, we're going to win in the end. <laughs> just support the settlements, have more Jews live there, and eventually we're just going to be slowly annexing. The, the, like in the U.S., many of the debates in Israel seem to be to be virtual about things that aren't even real or that are already decided, but that become major rhetorical fighting points. So, for example, the left is in a tizzy about the annexation of the West Bank. Dude, I was there in 2005, drive, in 2005 okay, almost 20 years ago, driving around the West Bank. The West Bank has been annexed. It's by any by any sane meaning of that word. It's controlled by the Israelis. You, you just drive through. There's no border checkpoint, right? The, the only exception is a few cities are kind of walled in and controlled in theory by the Palestinian Authority, like Janine, etc., where like the Israeli army doesn't go into. But broadly speaking, it is an extension of Israel. We we crossed into the West Bank because because the traffic to get back from the protests from Jerusalem was too much, so we cut into the West Bank to just get get back to Tel Aviv faster. That's not annexation. What the fuck is? Right. It's just it's ridiculous. Right. That, that's just the, the reality on the ground is that the West Bank or Judea, Samaria, what do you want to call it, is an extension of the Israeli state. Right. There's no other way to look at it. And so the only question is, well, what do you do about that? Do you do you do you make them Israeli citizens? Do you let them vote? I mean, there's a lot of particulars that are undecided. The reality is that I, th I don't I don't think there's an answer there. You talk to the left and they're like, no, it's an occupation. It's like, OK, but <laughs> and then, well, what are you going to do with like, oh, they should have they should have some level of autonomy. But the two-state solution is deader than dead. No one actually thinks Palestine will have a sane democratic regime that the Israelis can live with, right? They just don't. And so that's, that's not a solution either. I, I think there isn't a solution, is the reality. And that on the same trend line, you're going to have more settlers. And you can quibble over, you know, part of what Ben Gavir, the extreme right-wing guy who's in the current government, is crack down more on, you know, stronger on, on the Palestinians in, in the territories. And that's kind of a, a debate point. But I don't know. I, I, well, this takes us back to, I think, a conversation we had previously, the difference between Christian and Jewish narrative. Uh, there's, a, there's a great book called People Love Dead Jews by Dara Horn, one of the best writers about contemporary Judaism in my experience. We should have her on at some point. Um, I, I had her on my podcast ages ago. Um, and she says, you know, Christian narratives are about happy endings, right? The Gospels are the biggest happy ending of all, right? It's the apocalyptic end in which Christ returns and institutes the kingdom of God on earth, right? How does the Jewish Bible end? Moses gets to the promised land, does a little bit of uh, inheritance and probate work and then dies. <laughs> and that's it. And it's totally cliffhanger. You've been following this tribe along for five goddamn books. And at the end, you don't even know what happens at the end and whether there's actually a happy ending or not. 
I think I think Jews are a lot more happy with tortured, unclear, morally ambiguous endings, and that's and that's what they're comfortable with. We'll see. We'll see what happens in twenty years. That's the that's the view. Is modernity a death cult everywhere except Israel? Like, is every um, other country not reproducing above um, replacement rate, or like, and why? Why is that? You know, I, I bet Richard Hunter Nee has thoughts on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the U.S. the U.S. would be fine if we actually let immigration happen, right? So if we we were back to pre-COVID immigration, we were we were two point one. We were basically at just yeah, at replacement. Why, without immigration, are we having less like? Every, like literally everywhere because the only people who are having kids are are immigrants right so it's like the by coast you know the, the the coastal elites they they have one maybe two kids it's it's not gonna you have to have more than two kids on average to increase the population and that's a transient phenomenon like the yeah. the birth rates of those immigrant populations within a generation converge to the native one and so you have to keep this constant you get like one generation of increased fertility and then it, then it just converges to the mean there's nothing special about immigrants that they're they're not particularly fertile forever. It's just they they assimilate. And is it basically that as women get more educated and get better opportunities in the workplace, they the opportunity cost of having kids is higher, and thus they are less likely to want to have kids? I, I wouldn't blame it on on women. I'm not blaming it on, on women. I, I, I'm just saying. I, no, 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 no. I I would say there's also just a component of like you live in a city, you get used to a certain lifestyle, adding that. Adding kids is expensive, and then adding the third kid, like at a certain point, you're just like, okay, now I have to move to a different apartment, right? Like, and, and so I, I think that that all starts to, to kind of weigh subtly, not subtly, but um, just kind of across the whole segment of society, right? Whereas everyone is living in the suburbs, and and housing is relatively cheap, and you know, there's plenty of space outside. Then maybe maybe you're inclined to have that third or fourth kid. Yeah, wasn't there like a whole thing about how like getting the third baby seat into a car was part of the reason why we were pegged to two children or something? Because you had that, that extra one kid is like the soul breaker. I mean, I, I think what Dan is saying is certainly true and it's factors in it. But like as an extreme counter argument, which just means that it's more complex. If you look at Nordic countries where there's endless subsidies to have families, the cost of living is so expensive, you still have fertility problems, which again, I, I, I think what you're saying is true in the context of the United States. It's a multi-factor phenomenon, but it's not like solving all those problems necessarily gets you there. I think there just has to be, and I hate to just saying culture because it's this broad thing, but in Israel, for example, family does come first, right? Like, like I said, like I had a tweet go viral, which to me seemed almost like a cliche observation, but I was with a bunch of like startup dudes and going out having beers, the usual night out. They're all like younger than me. They're like in their late twenties, early thirties. They all, all of them were married. And then at least half of them had kids like, like they proceed, Israel enforces adulthood on you very quickly. You go to the army at 18, they put a rifle and they stick you in front at a checkpoint or in the Golan Heights. And suddenly you're a man at war in battle serving your nation it, with the team dynamic that that's birth. And as soon as you get out of that, you instantly want to get a college degree and you marry your sweetheart and have kids like instantly. And if you don't, you're kind of seen as like living like a child. I don't know. It's just not normal, right? Like what do you do on the weekends on Shabbat? If not hang out with your family, what go do yoga? It's like, it just, it isn't the way it works, right? And so I think a lot of it is just familial, cultural, religious to a certain degree. It's interesting you mentioned that because I, I was talking with my wife recently about this and that um, it, it I'm, I'm in the cohort of like kind of mid thirties, like yet people are all having kids and, you know, cause I am one of these coastal elite types and I find it fascinating that there's still this kind of like, Oh, well the adults are going to do this activity on the weekend and we can get a babysitter or do whatever. And it's just, and it just feels a little weird to me where it's like, I, I thought that was like the, the end of that chapter. And it's like, now we have kids and it's like, you do family oriented things. 
And I, and I have to suspect that that is a very American coastal phenomenon, which is then, of course, exported to the rest of the kind of Borg globally of like, oh, like, well, I need I need something for me as an adult. It's like, what what, what bullshit is that? Like, it's like your, your job is now to actually take care of your your kids and have more kids. Like, I, I, I think I don't know. There's something unnatural that that is that it feels very childish. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think. In Israel, you see it's a lot more, if you go to a social event, like everyone shows up with the kids and like six of the kids in a corner and they go play and like, that's it. And I mean, there is a division between adult and childish life as there necessarily has to be because psychologically you're not the same type of person, but it doesn't mean you have to exclude children from life in some way. There's also obviously much more intergenerational families. You can leave with a grandparent, you go with friends. I mean, kids have a network effect. If everyone around you has kids roughly the same age, then everything becomes a lot easier, right? I'm, oh, I'm just going to drop the kid off and then I'm going to do a thing, right? It doesn't become this whole production uh, childcare, so. Yeah, I think the intergenerational thing is also something that, especially where you have the ambitious people in the United States move to these kind of power cities, you know, San Francisco, New York, LA, DC, and you probably don't have your family local. Uh, it just, it, it's, it, feels very unnatural, right? It's like you're raising the kid in that city, but then the grandparents are far away. And so you lose a lot of that kind of, God, I wanted to say Lindy, but, um, you know, just the kind of natural way of, of child rearing that's existed for millennia, right? Are you guys optimistic that any of the proposed changes, whether it's, um, you know, increased childcare or better fertility benefits or fertility technology, like artificial wombs, do you think anything or even just paying people to have kids? Are there any interventions that will reverse um, the trend? My, my big thing is I think status is what drives most of it, right? So if all of a sudden having three or four kids was seen as high status, um, which in some ways it actually kind of, if you kind of look at the really, really rich people, like they, they have a gaggle of kids, right? Whether you have like, you know, Brangelina had the whole group of kids, Kim and Kanye, uh, Elon has a lot of kids. It, like, you know, I think Zuck has three kids. So I think at a high level, like obviously you have more resources and, and things like that. But I, I think if you were to make having more kids high status um, within elite circles, then then you're going to get it. People are going to be willing to sacrifice their their yoga and their expensive coffee to like be able to have more kids in their whether it's get a bigger place or move somewhere else. I, I would have been optimistic that like the kind of like post COVID remote work would encourage people to move to places where they could have more kids. But I think that that, that was a fever dream. Like I think everyone's going back to the office. So I don't know. What do you think Antonio? Yeah, dude, I'm a good diag- I, I, I diagnose things. I don't prescribe solutions, man. <laughs> I, I don't know how to fix it. I, I think I'm kind of a cynic. I, I don't think it's, it's hard to fix. I mean, look, what, what would it take, absent the moral implications, to actually make this happen? Imposing a certain religious morality, banning birth control, uh, making promiscuous sexuality considered immoral. Or look, I mean, there, there's so many. You could take us back to a Handmaid's Tale reality, and that would probably kick up the birth rate, right? I mean, we've just we've done experiments with living in modernity, and some of those have gone very well, and I would consider them to be progress. Some of them, I don't know, have blown up in our faces, and you can see the results if you go out in San Francisco. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, the other thing is that I don't know that. A lot of the prescriptions you see today are literally basically various forms of nostalgia. I've often joked that where you're on the political spectrum is basically a function of what year you think the clock should be turned back to, right? And if you're like an Obama centrist, you say 2008. And if you're like a trad, you say 1950. If you're an ultra trad, you say 1650. If you're a, I don't know what, like it's always some age in the past was the ideal era. Nobody has a vision of the future. And again, other than technology, other than technology, which as much as I love my tech bros and am one myself, it's like, that's a very narrow dimension that you're focused on. Like it is the material technology of a, of, of, of a 
of a society. Like we have literally driverless cruises, like driving, driving in front of our office. And it's super cool. Like all the tourists that come to watch the ball game, they sit there and take photos of it. Right. And again, I, I think it's a net improvement and I think we should all have autonomous vehicles. Well, Paris Marx means- doesn't Paris Marx thinks we should be going to the streets <laughs> and slashing the tires. Dude, uh, dude, once again, my theory that like Tom Wolf is running the script in heaven right now, a guy named Paris Marx is the biggest opponent to autonomous vehicles in San Francisco. If Wolf had written into a novel, they'd say, no, no, no it's too unlikely. And here we are. Paris Marx's thoughts on ABs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, speaking of, of tech, Dan, maybe let's segue into um, Farcaster, uh, and m- maybe you can give us the the update. You you originally started Farcaster, I, I believe, around two principles. One is a unsen- you know uncensorable Twitter, um, uh, and the other was a Twitter in which you could build or social media where you where you could build applications on top of. Those are two things that that Web two social media didn't enable. You want to trace the evolution there? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to bore you guys with all that, but I, I think one one interesting thing. So I started it working on what is now Farcaster in 2020. And I think a lot of people told me it was like, okay, what are, what are you spending time on that? Like, you're not going to be able to displace the network effect of something like a Twitter. Um, well, obviously, Elon showed up as the main character in this game and now has changed the the kind of table, so to speak, in that you have a bunch of competing social networks for what is this idea of like Twitter, um, with Twitter still being the most relevant. I think I've said this on the, the show in the past. I, I just don't think that that's going away. Like as much as people don't like Elon, the network effect of Twitter being Twitter is still going to be really strong. Maybe to like Eugene's point, um, it won't ever be the same as it was like peak 2020 where we're all at home kind of just sitting and glued to Twitter and, and you know, Clubhouse and whatever was trendy at the time. But I think um, in this new era, you you're going to have people kind of, at least more open-minded to trying something different. Um, but I, I don't actually think you're going to get anyone who's high status on Twitter to change over to any of the new social networks. I mean, we, we've ragged on threads plenty here, but um, I, I think where I've come in the last couple of years is like fundamentally, and maybe I should have had this up front, but you have to kind of go through it, is the only way something like Farcaster is going to work is if it enables things that are fundamentally new. And I can sit around twiddling my thumbs, hoping because it is an open protocol and, and we're almost at the point where it's 100 percent permissionless, which that's been a goal from the beginning. But I think um, we, we fundamentally have to have some type of new type of you know social experience built on top of it if people are going to actually use it in any amount of scale. Otherwise, it's, it's always going to be kind of some fringe, small minority of folks who are disgruntled about Twitter. And it's like you, you don't actually want to build a social network as like anti Elon. Like, I think we've already tried doing a bunch of those things and they just don't work. They, they attract the worst type of people. And rather, like, what's much more interesting is, like, paint a vision of the future, connecting back to what we were talking about before, that is actually exciting and new rather than something that is, like, I'm going to try to bring you back to where we were in the past. Okay, can I ask an annoying question, Dan? Which sure. if we're going If this is becoming Web3 Story Hour, can we... Uh, okay, so... <laughs> and obviously, I'm, I'm actually one of the, the offenders of uh, in, in the statement, but it's, like... One of the weird things about Web3 consumer, to the extent that it exists, is that we build so much infrastructure. I think it was I think it was Chris who coined the whole thing about the fat protocol thesis where the values in the protocol. And that's certainly been true for some aspects of DeFi. But on the consumer, it, it's just odd to me that even to this day, you see new Web3 companies that's just infra on infra on infra. It's like the nth iteration of some weird DeFi protocol that does some weird funky thing that maybe is residually interesting, but it's not that interesting from a con- consumer perspective. And you don't see what you saw 10 years ago in like the Web2 bubble of like every 
every person who could code a mobile app trying to create the next Instagram or something like it, right? And going out there and basically measuring their success in DAU and figuring out the business later. And somehow you don't see that level of like creative, destructive, you know, stuff going on in Web3 consumer like you used to. And I'm not sure why. Yeah, I have a pretty strong point of view on this. So just a uh, Chris didn't coin Fat Protocol thesis. This is a guy, Joel Monegro, who was working at Union Square Ventures. I've always disagreed with this because I actually think it's it's like a bane on the entire industry in that it attracts people to think that, oh, I build the protocol. It's like Field of Dreams. Like if you build it, they will come. And it's like Peter Thiel was the one that said that that's a complete fallacy. And it's like you need to do sales, right? And like you need to actually convince people to come and use your thing. So there, the, that is like one thing that um, is is holding crypto back. I think a second is if you just kind of look at a pure money-making standpoint, the easiest way to make money in crypto is to launch a blockchain that has a native token. You keep some of that token and then you get other people to use it because that's actually the kind of like, think of it as like the arcade token to actually like show up to the, you know, the, the party. And so I think that model of just like, oh, I can build a better fundamental blockchain nerd snipes so many smart people and like you just have generations of people doing it and and there have been enough successes there have been tons of different attempts at these blockchains like there's a whole term like professor coin um where it's like you you just pull some smart you know israeli professor math professor or, or american you know computer science professor or cryptography and it's like let's invent a blockchain that's that much more scalable and they kind of launch and then it, you inevitably go through an upcycle and everyone pumps that that coin as being like the next big thing Actually, Gary Gensler, the, the chairman of the SEC, was an advisor or was basically pumping one of these Professor Coins Algorand um, during the last kind of like not this past cycle, but the, the previous. Um, and so I, I, I think that is the issue is so you, you have a ton of interest in creating a blockchain because it's like you can just get people to, to increase the price of it by using it somewhat, uh, you can make a lot of money. So you have a whole bunch of people attempt that. And then it naturally leads itself to, well, I'm not going to build the blockchain, but I'm going to build the layer of infrastructure on top of it and the layers of abstraction. Rather than if, if, for example, let's say everything had consolidated around Bitcoin or Ethereum early on and no one else had attempted it, I think we would have moved way far, farther up the stack where the infrastructure actually been pretty built out. And then you get to a point where, okay, the only way to make money here is actually um, building apps. But what's interesting is most of the infrastructure companies in, in my 10 years in crypto have been zeros, right? So it's like, it's kind of almost like a midwit thing where during the um, boom times, everyone's like, oh man, if the infrastructure was just better, then we would have all these other apps. I'm going to sell the picks and shovels to these other people. And people always kind of lumped Coinbase into that element, but like people forget it's like Coinbase is a hundred million customers. Coinbase is an app that you use. It's, it's, a, it's a trading app, right? Um, so it's, it's infrastructure, but that it actually has a, a retail component to it. And, and so what you have is you have all these people, they start the company during the bull market. They, they raise a bunch of money. They have, they, they get writing their code and then the market comes, falls out. And then it's like, wait, okay, we're ready to launch our product in the kind of bear market. Right. And so I think, I mean, you're going through this now, like during the bear market to be able to actually be really savvy, get the deals done, keep the momentum for your Kind of product assuming you you believe in that infrastructure as the market picks back up and then inevitably more developers show back up you're going to be in the right place at the right time and those are the companies that have done really well alchemy being probably the best example of a pure infra company started in a previous cycle made it through the whole you know bear market and then came out the other side as a extremely valuable infrastructure company sorry that was a bit of a rant 
No, I thought it was great. I don't know, man. What's the equivalent of like photo filters? Remember when everyone tried to create a fucking photo filter app and Instagram somehow won? There's somehow, there isn't that ruthless competition on the Web3 consumer space. They tend to be speculative assets, right? So you have NFTs, you have tokens, you have, you know, there's something called Frontech that just launched, whereas like social tokens, which is BitClout, like 18 months ago did that. So you have some du jour version of speculation, but I think um, we have yet to have an app built on top of this kind of whole stack that is a breakout that is not rooted directly in the financialization of, of the, the kind of crypto behind it. And actually, I think one of the things that I've been excited about building Farcaster from the beginning is like, there is no explicit financial element to Farcaster, the protocol, nor the, the app that we're building Warpcast. And my belief is like, if we can actually build something that is useful on its own, that that is not only like a much more sustainable way to grow long term, but also I think it benefits crypto because it actually shows people it's like, oh, this is the pattern that you want to go copy. And so you you get a bunch of other people who who go and do it. I, I think it's also underrated um, how impactful Apple's packaging of the App Store was for the kind of 2010s in terms of all the growth that came out of that. Because if you think of like smartphones or, you know, phones before, like the types of people who were building like mobile apps prior to the iPhone were like, you know, they were selling you ringtone. It was like, it was pretty scammy, right? Like it was a whole ecosystem of like really overpriced, scammy stuff that once you got this like really nice environment and Apple did an amazing job getting, you know, hundreds of millions of people, billions of people with an iPhone and then Android, obviously, um, it became such a big market that it attracted people who could actually build like the Instagrams and all these, you know, WhatsApps and things like that. What do you think, Antonio, the Elon Zuck thing? I think you just fucking fight or shut up already. <laughs> That's what I think. So you're in, the like, Zuck, you're in the Zuck camp. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want to do it, do it. I mean, I just understand. I don't know. Yeah. I don't want to get into the weeds of it, but like Elon's pretending as if he's planning things and apparently he wasn't talking to Zuck at all about it. And Zuck's like, okay, look, game on, just name the date. And then suddenly it's, I don't know. It's weird that Walter Isaacson posted, I guess, the thread in which he, it's like, I don't understand. He's obviously a confidant because he's writing a book about Elon. Um, and yet he's divulging a text thread, something I would never do. I, I don't know. The whole thing is fucking weird, man. Like, I think it's all big yeah. mind games from Elon. I think, I think he's he got just, permission. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Elon's trying to do a, a big mind game here. Maybe that's, maybe that's 4D chess. I, I thought it made Elon look bad. But Paul Scalis uh, tweeted, uh, you know, Elon is con totally controlling the frame. <laughs> uh, you know, Zuck is uh, complaining, looking like the beta. But maybe, maybe to bring it up a little bit more kind of intellectually, um, what, what, what do you think it says about society, Antonio, that we're like caring about the text messages between two billionaire tech founders, like potentially fighting for charity in the Coliseum? Like what? I don't know. I, 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 I guess we're just bored. Like we, we have nothing better to do. Uh, well, there's I, I well, here's a piece of civilizational decay and barbarism that at least is somewhat amusing and at least <laughs> Roman in its grandeur. Right. Yes. Let's let's have um, uh, what's his name? The 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 gladiatorial emperor who was what scandalized Rome by actually getting into the into the arena. Why not? I think it's uh, it's definitely a check on the virtualized bullshit of online to actually take a fist in the face. <laughs> so, yeah. I think I'd be, I'd be for it. The, my, my favorite part is, my favorite thing is like they got the, the prime minister of Italy or something to permission. <laughs> and I'm just like, this is what the prime minister of Italy is doing is he's, he's, he's giving permission to use the Coliseum at this point. Like imagine, imagine showing like this whole, 
this whole uh, scenario to Augustus. To be like, this is what Rome will become. Is a, you're a tourist attraction for rich Americans to, to fight in the Coliseum so that they can make their, their kind of like online streaming platforms. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's just, I, I think it's really fun. It would be the biggest media event of, of the year. And I think it should happen. And my money is on Zuck, by the way. I think Mark is going to totally take you on. You don't think the size, the size advantage is big enough? A, Zuck is pretty ripped and he just has better training. And better fitness too. His fitness is incredible. Didn't he do that military challenge with like the weighted vest and all that shit? That was like a world class time. The guy's actually in amazing shape. Elon just isn't. Right. Yeah, I think that that I, I'm not an expert on boxing, but everything I know is like there's a reason they have the the heavyweight categorization and the you know lightweight like weight is actually a pretty big factor here more so than like shape training. But but maybe Zuck can just like topple Elon. Right, like one one quick swipe of the legs or something, and then then once he's on the floor, the the size advantage doesn't matter. I think the weight thing matters if you assume athletes. If you're on the efficient frontier of peak performance, okay. then that weight thing fair. matters. But like, uh, you know, whatever weight I is, I, I'm not going to say it publicly. I don't think I have a huge advantage against a flyweight boxer. I think I'm still going to get my ass kicked, right? Because we're not really comparing apples with apples, right? I would probably be a super heavyweight in the boxing division, and I'm not comparable to a Mike Tyson, right? And I'm not going to have Tyson's advantage over that that flyweight or that bantamweight boxer, right? So, and and yes, if there was if there was a, a zuck of Elon's weight, I would agree with you. But it's that's not what we're discussing. So I would, and I, I think it would turn into a grappling fest, and then Zuck would just totally win, and they would make force Elon to tap out, and that's it. Yeah, yeah that's, that's probably right. But I, I I hope it happens. I mean, what a what an event. My last comment that is just that physically, it, it would actually be an upgrade to the existing culture. As barbaric as it is, and it is a little barbaric to be seeing two titans literally beat the shit out of each other. I think morally, it would actually be an upgrade. But that, that said, I think we should bring dueling back. <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, getting in the ring with your antagonist should actually be like a legal thing that we condone as a society. So, Speaking of the other big thing that happened regarding a former Titan is that SBF is, is back in jail. And it looks well, you, like... Do you, know, do you know the story here? No, no, no. Tell the story. What's the story? Oh, man, it's so great. So he, he basically um, gets home. He starts using a VPN, which like that was prohibited and like they had like an instance where he like watched i, I want to say it was like he watched the super bowl from the vpn like he was in the bahamas because like he didn't i, I don't know I, it was just so, something so inane and dumb and he leaked the diary from his ex-girlfriend caroline to the new york times and then there was like some argument of like how he leaked it it's like made the new york times re reporter like view it on his laptop because he wouldn't send it but then the New York Times had to write like a, a defense piece of him saying that it was like totally justified that SBF was going to give the, the reporter access to the diary so that they were kind of like simping for SBF. And then um, he also like tried to harass like the former general counsel or chief compliance officer or something. So I <laughs> just like, fuck you, like this is against the bail and, and sent him back to, to jail. So he's back in the clink. So. SPF is obviously a sociopath who can't even follow basic rules and thinks he's above the law, clearly, even when, like, his ass is basically on the line. And two, does that mean he actually has to forfeit the $250 million bail? What what happens? Didn't his parents put up the house or something as part of that bond? Yeah, you're right. I, I'm, I don't know enough about bail law. Like, maybe it's only if you skip bail. But, yeah, that that's crazy if that, um, you know, they have to pay the house. He 
sounds like they're scummy people. So yeah, they're Stanford professors, terrible people. That's yeah. <laughs> I, um, you know, my heart goes out for him. Uh, Martin Shkreli had a tweet that was like, uh, or had some advice for SBF that was like, lower your voice, uh, learn rap music, <laughs> like be familiar with urban areas. I <laughs> mean, Yo, he he um he was going off on it. He he like yeah. was explaining. He's like some guy was you know giving an opinion. He's like, I know more about se- federal sentencing guidelines than you'd ever want to know. Like, yeah. he, it, it was like pretty um. Dude, it, it's it's scrully season, guys. Yeah, dude, he reply guyed <laughs> me. He reply guyed me. Like, I, I mean, we should probably have him on the pot at some point. <laughs> Antonio's dubious, but he's uh he's back, man. He's healed his image. He's uh he's an entrepreneur. Who's more canceled, he was- Martin Shkreli or Hanania? I think they're both back. <laughs> Eric Eric is w- willing to talk to anyone who's been canceled at any point, as long as it's growing turpentine media. Uh, we have a show called In the Arena for people who've been through big crises. But Martin went on it. It was a great episode. We had someone from Firefest come on. We uh yeah it's uh <laughs> with someone from FTX. I mean it, these are interesting stories. You know Ma- Machiavelli had a famous quote that he said that if he was given the choice between heaven and hell between living with, you know, saints and monks and aesthetics or, you know, warriors and adventures and whatnot in hell, he would prefer, he would pick hell. Could it be more interesting? I think some vision of Machiavelli in hell is you show up and it's like Shirkelly and Hanania and the fire <laughs> festival guy, and they're all in one room SPF. and that is, and then an SPF. And that's, that's the elevator you're stuck in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I gotta run. Uh, let's right. wrap on that. Great stuff, guys. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.